So this is episode two of the Progression Health Podcast. And today I have Karen Anderson, a psychologist on, and we'll be discussing how the psychology of health, how important it is, and then how social support and the beliefs that you have about yourself and others relates to your health journey. Uh, so Karen, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and just introduce yourself for people who haven't heard of you before? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the program. I appreciate it. So my background, I started as a therapist. I have a master's in clinical psychology. So I was the therapist uh, for the first portion of my career. I actually worked in the South side of Chicago with children in the child welfare system. So working with kids and adolescents who obviously had been through a lot of trauma and grief and fractured families. So that's where I started. I was a weirdo in grad school that I loved giving class presentations. <laughs> Most of my peers did not because again, we were trying to be trained to be therapists and they preferred the one-on-one -on -one and the counseling, but I enjoyed being up in front of everybody. And so I decided after several years of being a therapist that I wasn't done with my education. I went back and got a doctorate in developmental psychology because at that point I decided I wanted to be a professor, which I did five years at Chicago State University, which is a state school in the South side of Chicago. And then five years, I moved into a grad program at Concordia University in Chicago, just outside of Chicago, actually, the, a suburb west called River, River Forest. And I was there uh, teaching people who wanted to become counselors. So then at that point, integrating all that I'd done myself as a therapist into as a professor teaching those who wanted to be school counselors or community mental health counselors. And then I got into this relationship space because along the way, my professional life was going as planned. My personal life, not as much. I was doing what most of us do, dating, trying to meet my person and wasn't finding my person and then started experiencing a lot of the, we call it single shaming now, but a lot of these questions like, what's a nice girl like you doing still single at 30 and ended up uh, dating someone for several years in my thirties and calling off a wedding two months before it was to occur because I realized I was in the wrong relationship and I was 34 and a lot of my peers had already found their person and started their families. And that pressure was very real, but I didn't want to step into the wrong marriage with the, the person who was a wonderful man, but just not my guy. So then I'm back out in, in the, my mid thirties in Chicago, living my single girl life and doing what a lot of women do. I went to the self-help section of the bookstore and there were so many messages that suggested that I was doing everything fundamentally wrong and that I was somehow fundamentally flawed and that I was too picky and I was maybe too intimidating with my PhD and all these messages that were so disparaging. I'd leave the self-help section feeling worse. <laughs> and then I remember complaining to my parents about all the books and all these messages that I thought were quite bogus. And my parents were like, well, you're, you're a psychologist. Why don't you write a book? <laughs> so then I wrote my book, Single is the New Black, Don't Wear White Till It's Right as a word of encouragement and empowerment, uh, a counter message to the, to the prevailing message that you're, there's something wrong with you if you're still single. And then of course, promoting my book kind of ushered me into this dating relationship space where I kind of land in, on Instagram. But as a psychologist who was a therapist, I really love talking about all the things that are related to psychology and how we can integrate these therapeutic tools and practices into our daily lives so that we can thrive and function at a higher level, which of course is where we connect you and I, because I know the work that you do is looking to help people thrive with their physical health. And of course their emotional health is, is absolutely related to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, that's very brave of you to, to back out and just go with what you believe in. Like that's, 
you know, thank you. Not something I, felt you like a train, I felt like a train wreck at the time, <laughs> but uh, it's kind of you to say that I was brave have, having talked to other women and other men also who uh, sometimes didn't. They, they felt in their gut that they were in the wrong relationship, but everything, the, the wedding had already been planned and grandma was flying in from California and that train had just so much momentum. They didn't think that they could derail things. And typically they do end up divorced later. So looking back, I'm thankful that I was able to do that. And it also gives me a vantage point that I can share with women and men in my community who are struggling and to give them that, that, that sense of, of, yes, do trust your gut. It's important. Your gut's telling you what's right for you and what's wrong for you. And sometimes we, we, we stifle it sometimes. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and then just thinking of hard experiences like that, for example, the pandemic, you know, we never say, you know, I'd want to commit to something like a wedding or, you know, be involved in a pandemic and then have everything change, you know, go through like a really difficult time like that. But, you know, in my experience, when you come out the other side of a difficult experience, you always feel like, you know, you feel stronger, um, kind of like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Wow. And basically, you almost feel like what you've learned from it is invaluable and, and, and you're happy to have gone through a difficult experience like that. Would you agree? Or Oh, I 100%. You know, we talk about that in therapy a lot, that no one wants to go, wow, I'm feeling so down. I'm feeling so out of sorts. I'm feeling so anxious. I need to go to a therapist. No one wants that. <laughs> we want to stay on easy street. You know, we want to skip through the day, but we know that it's always those valleys in life that make us stronger, like you're saying. And as much as when you're in that valley and you're in that deep well of pain, you don't have the wherewithal in that moment to say, this is going to be good for me one day. We don't have that. But the older we get, we, we gain a little wisdom and we can remind ourselves, even in those deep, dark moments, like I hate it here right now. I'm so unhappy, but I'm going to trust and believe that I will come out stronger. I will come out with more wisdom. And that's the beauty of having a few years under our belt. We really can see that there, there's something valuable to the struggle. Yeah. Just to go all personal trainer on you for a minute. Uh, <laughs> I had a session with a client where we were changing her technique and she was particularly strong at her, uh, her normal technique, but we were trying to make a change and we were taking two steps back to take one forward. The session wasn't as effective, but that's just sometimes what you have to do. You know, you have to, um, just take a step back, reevaluate, you know, go through like a, a challenge and then, you know, over the long term, that, that, that kind of little bit of struggle and challenge, it'll, it'll make you better going forward. Um, so true. Yeah, it's um, it's not yeah, it's not nice in the moment, but if you can just have perspective and realize that like, you know, nothing lasts forever, and the uh, the, the bad time won't last forever. Um, but yeah, so speaking of therapy and all your experience with therapy, so you had an episode uh, like one thirty eight where you talked about therapy. Um, so there's like a lot of stigma around it, um, but you know, as I've gotten older, I've started to go to therapy more and more. And I find it's probably for my health, you know, above nutrition and above my exercise, it's probably, you know, it's, it's very hard to say what's the most important, but it's definitely as important as my exercise and nutrition. Um, so I was thinking, do you, would you recommend that everybody go to therapy or is it only, you know, you only go to therapy when you need to go to it or, you know, how does, um, what you do in therapy relate to your overall health as well? So, uh, do you have any insights on those questions? 
Yeah, I, I would love to see that we would perceive as a culture, we would perceive therapy more like we perceive going to the dentist twice a year to get our teeth cleaned and the, a mental health checkup, so to speak. I, I would love it if we could move from that stigma that does still exist to a notion of life is long and complex and arduous. And there are many losses that we incur. It doesn't have to be a massive trauma that you experienced as a child or as an adult. It can be those little grieving moments. Little, I say, that's not the right word actually, but because every loss is profound and, and, and impactful. And I think so often we, we create coping mechanisms when we're young, as we're just trying to grapple and grow. And those, those coping mechanisms don't always serve us. They may work for a time and then they may not work so well, especially childhood ones. Maybe we came from an abusive home. So we learned to silence our voice because that's the way that we stay out of the way. When dad comes home and he's raging, we get quiet and we hide. Well, that doesn't serve us in an adult romantic relationship where we're not asking for and expressing who we are. So I would love that. Then again, I will say from people who've been to therapy and myself included, not every therapist is the right fit for every client. So we have to be savvy. I never encourage anyone to just open up their behavioral health packet that they got with their health insurance and just find a therapist who lives near them. We don't know anything about this therapist. I hate to say it, but there's a lot of quacks in the field. There are, and we need to find a strong fit. So I always recommend people, I mean, and people can DM me for, for suggestions because even though I may not be in someone's area and not know a particular therapist that I can vouch for, I do know about the different modalities and orientations. And based on what someone's struggling with, I can share the, the therapeutic techniques and orientations that I think are, are most appropriate. And my bias in general is a cognitive approach, which anyone who listens to my podcast knows because I talk about it all the time. And it is shown through the research to be the most effective with depression and anxiety, which is essentially what most people are dealing with when they have this kind of, I'm just feeling off. Usually there's some depression, some anxiety that hasn't been addressed and they could learn some really, and I say simple, but profound simple, not complicated techniques with mindset that I'm sure you touch on with your clients that can make a huge difference because our thoughts are fueling our emotions. So when I'm feeling down, there's a thought behind that. And the thought is where the power is. I can change that thought, have an enormous impact on my emotional well-being. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, the mindset is the kind of the daily practice I'm trying to do with the clients. And then I guess the therapy is like, it's seen as a more heavy-handed approach to mental health, but it shouldn't be, as you say, it should be as, uh, as normal as going to the dentist. Um, so kind of outside of a session, you know, let's just say for a client or like for recommendations, you know, on like a, a daily level for, for mental health, um, do you have any recommendations like as, um, I know there's things like journaling and, and meditation. Um, what are some ways to manage mental health outside of a therapy session or that you would have recommended to clients in the past? Yeah, again, they're very kind of simple practices that you make habits, right? Because, and there's a whole book about this and I can't remember the happiness project, maybe I think it's by Gretchen Rubin where she looks at the research. She's not even a psychologist, but she just looks at the research that really when someone's in a happy state and, and, a, and feel and a happy is a 
not the best word because I don't think that anyone is going to be blissfully happy all the time. And that may be something that we would love to have happen in our emotional state, but that's pretty unrealistic. But to, to feel decent, to feel decently good on, on the regular, one of the things we can do is there's so much research on gratitude and happiness. It's always correlating in the literature, every study. And so are happy people more grateful or are grateful people more happy? You know, correlation doesn't equal causation. So we don't really know the directionality of effects there. But to, to wake up in the morning and to have a practice of gratitude. For me, I'm a Christian, so I pray every morning. And I'm not a morning person, so I'm, I'm naturally very crabby when I wake up. I don't want to get out of bed ever. So I wake up and I try to go to a place of gratitude. God, thank you for bringing me through the night. Thank you that I'm healthy. Thank you. Thank you that I can get out of this bed. There's people who can't. They have to pull up a wheelchair to get out of bed. You know, these small things that we take for granted every day, if we would, you literally cannot be in an emotional state of, of anger or fear or uh, sadness. You cannot dwell in that state. You continue to look to gratitude. It's emotionally and cognitively impossible. So that's a, a, an easy thing to do. So you go to prayer, you go to meditation, you go to journaling, whatever your practice would be. And that's a wonderful way to start your day, especially in, in, in pandemic times and times when our anxiety is the norm because we are living in very uncertain times. To go to that gratitude is just one simple practice that I would recommend. Yeah, going to the, the well of gratitude. Um, I remember hearing before about it's like, you know, this wouldn't be effective all the time, but, you know, try and try and think like an angry or, you know, uh, an unhelpful thought when you physically smile. So, you know, physically smile and then try and think a negative thought. It's like they just don't go together. So uh, that gratitude practice, kind of like going to the well of gratitude. Yeah, like invaluable. It's something um, I think just more people in general need to try. And I definitely need to work on it myself. Yeah, so we're really all works, yeah, we're all works in progress. And you know what you just spoke to is a great one as well, because there is research that is hard, very hard for us. It's this cognitive dissonance almost where your face, your facial expression goes into a smile and it's sending messages between your brain and your brain's like, well, if I'm smiling, I got to be happy, right? <laughs> so it really, yeah, you're kind of hacking your own system to, to get yourself into a happier place. So yeah, that's one. And the other one I would also recommend that is, again, it's all anchored in cognitive therapy, which again is shown by the research. And it's, it's much more powerful. I'm not a big fan of medication as a solution for most, not for all. Of course, there are extreme examples, but for the average American, when we feel sadness, we oftentimes, especially in this age of big pharma, we go to even our, our, uh, our regular doctor and they may, want, they may want to prescribe psychotropic medication like a Wellbutrin or a Prozac. And I, as a psychologist, I'm not a fan of those at all. And if anyone wants to understand that, I have an episode with Dr. Alan Francis, who is a psychiatrist. So that's the medical doctor who specializes in psychology as well. And he was actually the chair of the DSM, which is the Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders in four, version four, and now we're in version five. He's really appalled by the connection between big pharma and psychologists and psychology and therapy, because what we've done is try to medicalize what is a normal response. So for example, in the four, if you went to your therapist or to your physician and said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling really sad. I'm, I feel like I'm depressed. They would want to know, well, did you just lose your grandmother or did you lose someone close to you? 
And a grieving clause would be understood that then we're not going to prescribe you with medication. We're not going to diagnose you as depressed because you have every good reason to feel sad. Well, they've removed the grieving clause in the five, suggesting that if you ever feel sad, well, it's a diagnosis that you're psychiatrically ill, you have depression, and it's time to take a pill. And as one who wants to advocate for us recognizing that life is complex and it's long and hard and we have the full range of human emotions and it would be abnormal to not feel sad if you were going through a breakup or the loss of your grandmother or a divorce like that would be bizarre you would be a robot so i'm very careful with the medicalization of of human conditions and of the human experience so the cognitive approaches are a way to address those emotions that are that that are feeling those feelings that you don't want. They're unwelcome. They're undesirable. As we spoke to earlier, they may be necessary for our growth. We may need to put on our big girl pants and trudge through them, but the cognitive approaches can also identify, are there some thoughts that you are thinking on a regular basis that are limiting defeatist thinking that is taking you down. That's making you feel ways that you don't need to feel or the beliefs that are anchored there. And probably you deal with this with some of your clients who go, well, I'll never be in shape. You know, I've got bad genes. My family's all been heavy and unhealthy, right? And so you have to dismantle those beliefs because those beliefs are fueling the thoughts, which fueling the emotions and fueling the behavior. It's all linked up. So I encourage anyone who is thinking about some of these daily practices to look at cognitive therapeutic approaches. You could just Google them. One that I love is REBT, Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy. And just looks at all your irrational thoughts. And then for me, I enjoy this because I'm in my head a lot, like a lot of us, but you have an irrational thought and then you dismantle it. You dispute it. You're like, well, that's irrational. <laughs> so it's, I like to duke it out. There's other approaches that are a little bit more Zen. Like you notice the thought and you defuse from it. That comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, I've had the founder of, of acceptance and commit, commitment therapy, Dr. Stephen C. Hayes on my program before. I think you mentioned you listened to that episode. So there's a lot of very small adjustments we can make to our mental state and our mindset throughout the day. And initially they feel weird and awkward. Just again, the analogy is perfect for what you do. Initially, if you told me, okay, Karen, get down and do 10, 10 push-ups, 10 sit-ups, I'd be like, I can't do it, right? But as I keep the practice makes me stronger and you really think of your, your mind as almost like a muscle that you are strengthening neural pathways that are firing in the direction of rational, empowered thinking that will make you so much happier in life. Yeah, it definitely is a muscle that we need to train more of. Uh, I know myself, I have, uh, you know, I think during the pandemic, it's been easy to make excuses. And I'm just kind of, you know, coming through that now and seeing, you know, being more rational and seeing where I've made excuses, like, you know, I I can't, you know, train this day or whatever, or I can't do this, do that. And, um, you know, that's where, you know, reflecting on what you're doing and, and the journaling that the practices outside of therapy have helped me, you know, tremendously. And with the self-limiting beliefs of clients, it's, it's so interesting to, you know, know a client and know their strengths and weaknesses and then get them to do a movement or an exercise that they don't believe they can do. And then just watch them, you know, excel at it. And then they actually feel like, you know, they have a, a different outlook or, uh, they, they know the true strength after that, which is like, you know, a great part of my job. Um, so then you mentioned in your, uh, in your work, you did developmental psychology. So um, another episode that was very interesting is uh, the, the 130 episode uh, about like the childhood. 
how, how do you think, I, I hear that childhood affects everything we do. Um, what are some of the kind of uh, common things that uh, affect people from their childhood um, and it, they carry it through to their adulthood? I know that's a pretty like big question. I'm, I'm aware of, you know, your, tra- your childhood, we're talking about, you know, 10, potentially, you know, 18 years for some people. Um, so it's a, lar- a large uh, period of time. But what are some of the common ways that would affect someone um, and their health? Yeah, there's so much that, I mean, you can go Freudian and talk about these mother infant dynamic we can get to a body of uh of literature called family systems theory there's a therapeutic realm family systems therapy looks at these family dynamics that we're born into a family and every family has different rules in air quotes because these aren't rules that are posted on the refrigerator these are just ways of operating uh rules that aren't spoken they're just understood. You pick them up. You understand, oh, I'm allowed to speak to this parent this way. I'm, allow- I'm allowed to speak to this parent this way. I, we have a certain rule about how close we are, how distant we are. There's a lot of terminology that can be very helpful for anyone trying to understand. Uh, let me give you an example that relates to health. It's so interesting. So I was when I was teaching the grad courses, as I mentioned earlier, I would teach a section on family systems. And I was trying to ask that. So these were 20, 30, 40 year olds who were in grad school now and wanting to be therapists, as I mentioned. And I would ask them to try to under to uncover some of these rules because sometimes even when you're in your 30s and 40s, if you haven't ever had a, an opportunity to really examine what are the rules that you grew up in your family of origin, it's they're sometimes hard to identify. Because again, even in adulthood, we think that most we don't think that, but we do think that at some point that we think, well, that's how every mother and daughter is. That's how how are that's how every father relates to his kids. We don't always recognize, we start to get some clarity on that when we go to college and we see that some people are phoning home every single day. Some students, they haven't talked to their parents in three months. So we start to understand these dynamics of closeness and distance and the expectations and the rules surrounding them. But even in adulthood, it can be sometimes hard to uncover these rules. And here's one that I was, um, I was trying, to, uh, trying to help these students understand some of the rules that would be, again, not the obvious ones. And there were these two sisters both taking my course. And I said, what about rules? And oftentimes it'll be a rule that you don't realize is operating, but you feel it because if you violate it, there's shame, there's guilt. And if you look at it with your adult eyes, you'd be like, why did I feel shame and guilt for something that's totally reasonable? And these sisters were like, oh, we've got one. And they said, the unspoken rule in our house was when mom has ice cream, everyone has to eat ice cream. Right now, that was never going to be posted on the refrigerator. Like the rule in this house is, but what happens is mom's going to have a treat and she's going to indulge and she's going to feel a little guilty about it, but she won't feel so guilty if everyone has it. So if a kid's just like, I don't have a sweet tooth right now. I don't feel like having ice cream. The daughter was going to get shamed into having ice cream to make mom feel okay about having ice cream. And so something like that, I think again, would apply to your work because there may be these subtle rules about good food and bad food and what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. And they could be coming from, again, as you spoke to from a developmental psychologist perspective, we could look at those family dynamics that that could be lingering and still impacting one of your client's behaviors. Yeah, actually, I can think of a very relevant one that a lot of people experience is you always finish your dinner. I know in Ireland, they would have said, oh, there's, you know, there's people starving around the world who would kill to have this meal, make sure you finish it. But it's like, 
you know, your internal hunger cues are extremely important. They're there to, to tell you when you're full and when you're hungry. And if you're overriding them, um, just without mindlessly overriding them, then that's going to, you know, cause problems. That's going to diminish the, uh, the connection you have with them. Um, and it could set you up, you know, uh, for health problems down the line if you don't address it. So that's like one obvious one that I see a lot, even in myself, you know, it's like, I have to realize that, you know, it's okay not to finish your dinner. You can put it back and have leftovers the next day or later on, you know? Absolutely. Um, so yeah, that podcast episode you referred to with, uh, Stephen Hayes was, was very interesting. I loved how he talked about, uh, flexibility. He oh, talked about, love it. um, could you explain that a little bit for people who don't understand? Is it cognitive flexibility? Is that how you define it or? His term, and again, it comes from ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. It's called Psychological Flexibility. And it's very much cognitive, for sure. He considers ACT a third-generation cognitive therapy. So it's definitely rooted in, in the cognitive realm. And we address our thoughts. And we can be more flexible with our thoughts if we, what he calls, as I mentioned earlier, defuse from our thoughts. So something very little, like, um, instead of, oh, I, I'm the worst. I didn't work out today. Right. Something like that, that we could be thinking I'm the worst. And then you're, then you're depressed. Oh, I'm such a lazy. I'll I'll never, I'll never be motivated. I'll never get the body I want all these kinds of thoughts. Right. He would suggest one element of psychological flexibility is to defuse from that thought, because what happens is then you're like, and I'm worthless and I'm no good. And I'm completely unmotivated. And I'm always going to be fat and and unhealthy for the rest of my life. So defusing can be something simple, like, oh, I'm noticing that I'm having the thought that I'm worthless and I'm no good because I didn't work out today. So just that bit of distance that you create can help someone recognize, okay, just because I didn't do what I wanted to do, which is unfortunate (laughs) because I want to, another element of of act is to understand your values and then move your, to align your behaviors so that they serve. I love this term, the, the, the way they phrase it, in the, so that your thoughts and actions are in the service of your chosen values. So you notice that you're having the thought that you're worthless because you didn't work to out today. And then you, you, instead of being like, and I'm worthless, I'm taking on that identity, I am being overwhelmed and then almost stuck in that feeling of you've labeled yourself worthless, you feel worthless, right? That diffusion helps you go, okay, I'm noticing that I have the thought that I'm worthless and I feel horrible because I didn't work out today. And then you can go, well, what do I want to do with this, right? Instead of being incapacitated then by that overwhelming, I'm worthless, eh, the thought, and then also feeling worthless, you provide a little diffusion and then you can go, okay, well, because I'm not all these things, I recognize that, yes, I feel this way right now, but if I, if I separate and, and don't step into the thought and step into the, the feeling, then I can work with it better. I have more objectivity. And then say something like, yeah, so I've identified one of my values is to be healthy. And that, that value entails being active and eating well. And then we can try to be a little gentler with ourselves. Again, instead of identifying as I'm worthless, go, okay, it's, it's out of step with my values today that I didn't work out. And so then provide, instead of, again, getting overwhelmed and getting stuck in and incapacitated by all this negative emotions we just provide that distance which then allows us this flexibility to go and what would i like to do with that well i think what i'd like to do with that is get back on my my training get back on my regimen so it's a small shuttle subtle shift but again act is another uh, a therapeutic modality that has demonstrated through a ton of research how effective it is 
And actually, as we're talking, I think that'd be something you might want to look into with your clients who are frustrated. Maybe they are not feeling they can stay on their training program as much as they'd like. I think the act would be really helpful for them. Yeah, to accept that, you know, we're human, you know, common humanity, everyone has struggles and challenges. And um, when we beat ourselves up, we kind of compound the problem, then that can start a a vicious cycle. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the the flexibility, I remember reading research about like dieting. So I know dieting, you you know, you might know more than me, but it's like very debated as to whether it's it's a healthy approach to to health. But um, when they looked at people who were dieting and they were rigid. It's like, you know, I have to do this, have to do that um, every day versus they had a flexible approach. There was much more side effects to the rigid approach. So it's like, I think that's very like symbolic for life. You know, if you are like a perfectionist, um, if you look at life in a black and white way, um, you either, you know, pass or you fail, you succeed or you you lose. And that's like, that's not how life is. It's very gray. um, And it's very freeing when you can be more accepting and be more flexible. That's like, it's an, uh, an invaluable life skill already once you, you realize the importance of it. Yeah, it really is. Another skill that is associated with what you're saying is what we call a reframe, which is a very, it, it, the simplest example would be is the glass half full or half empty. And of course we can say, well, that's just Pollyanna and those Susie Sunshine people just always putting a positive spin on it, but that's powerful. You know, when I cut off my wedding, I had the opportunity and I did. I felt like, as I mentioned earlier, I felt like a train wreck. I felt like a failure. I've, I was 34 years old. I dated this man for four years. Why did it take me all that time? What, couldn't I have broken up with him three and a half years before, right? Instead of dragging everyone through this drama and bridesmaids had to return dresses and lost money with the photographer and, and the... all the things like I really beat myself up. And so I had the opportunity to think, well, I'm a disaster. Also, I'm a psychologist. So I should be the one who would definitely not make those decisions and carry on with a relationship that wasn't meant to go the distance and then break his heart and his family. They, I mean, it was very painful. So I had the opportunity at that point to either feel like an utter failure or I had the opportunity to, as you mentioned earlier, to begin to be psychologically flexible in how I perceived this event in my life and go, well, maybe, and it took me a while, I didn't believe it at first, maybe a reframe is that it was an act of strength and courage and that it was an act of authenticity. I didn't go down the aisle and, and, and state vows in front of God in a church that I didn't believe, that I truly didn't, I couldn't commit to, they, they would have been lies. So it took me a while, but that's the kind of thing we can do with psychological flexibility is to be more open to interpreting our circumstances in a way that, and again, the cynic will say, well, just put a happy little spin on it. But actually people who put happy little spins on life are a lot happier. (laughs) They are more psychologically healthy because as you're saying, they look for that opportunity to go, okay, I don't love that this happened. But what did I learn from it? Can I be stronger? As we spoke to you earlier, what doesn't kill you make you stronger? And so true. And another example, I felt so horrible that I had broken his heart and committed. He proposed and I made a promise that I would marry him and then had to renege on that promise. And but uh, a friend said later, he's like, that was the most loving thing you ever did for him. I mean, how cruel would it have been to, yes, in fact, state vows that you didn't believe and you couldn't, that would have been lies. You freed him up to find his person. And 
that would have been really unloved. And I needed to see it that way because I felt like a horrible person. So those sorts of, uh, uh, again, getting back to these, what can we do on a daily on a daily basis to integrate? Those are small changes that, again, once they, like a muscle, they'll become easier and easier. At first, I'll be like lying to myself. But as you start integrating them into your mental practice, they'll become easier and easier. And it'll be harder. And this goes to the physiological as well. As I noted earlier, you're going to strengthen neural pathways that keep you that are so on a physiological level. And this is also, this is fact. We know from neuroplasticity that we can strengthen the neural connections that keep us in a more positive state. And the ones that, that it's almost like a river going down a mountain and it keeps going and going and the groove gets deeper, right? The stream or whatever. So it's, it's on a physiological basis that we can, a neurological basis can make a difference in our mental state through these subtle changes and psychological flexibility reframes. They're, they're very powerful. That is like an extremely powerful reframing. It reminds me of uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which would probably be renamed to uh, Human Search for Meaning nowadays. But <laughs> um, yeah, basically, you found the meaning where there didn't seem to be any at all, you know? So that was a really, you know, uh, timely piece of advice from your friend. Um, and a great example of, you know, how valuable, because it's like the stories we tell ourselves are, are you know, foundational to, to how we see the world. So um, you, you literally rewrote the history books in your mind. It could have been, you know, oh, I made a mistake, whereas no, I actually did an act of, you know, a loving act of service to this other person. Yeah. 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 And, and there's, you know, ruminating has been shown to be related to depression. So when we ruminate and obsess, and it's very common, like you said, our brains are designed to find meaning and that's cognitive psych. We'll look at all the research. We don't like ambiguity as we want in survival, right? Because if I see something in the distance, I want to know right away, what do you mean to me? Are you coming as a friend or foe, right? So it makes sense that we try to, to make meaning. And sometimes because of brain, our brains are also, we, we need to look for fear, for threats on the horizon. And so we are primed to often go to that negative. So we have to make sure that we're actively strengthening the part of our brain to keep us in a more positive state. And yeah, and, and, and our stories, as you spoke to, they make all the difference. And at first, like I said, it might feel a little phony, like, well, this feels like I'm lying to myself. But then as you start to step into it, you go, well, no, everything is perspective. It's everything. Every single moment of the day, I have a choice. I don't have a choice about pretty much anything else, but I have the choice how I want to perceive every event that happens to me. And can I find something that will help me, like you said, look at this part of my history and, and see it as a way that I can, it built into me and it empowered me as opposed to feeling like one more part of my history that tried to defeat me. And some people, I'm sure, again, with the work you do, some people really live in this space of everything's happening to me. And I would challenge them with little, can it, is it possible that happened for you? Those sorts of mental shifts can be really profound. Yeah, that makes me think of the word responsibility. So you, you, you break it down and it's like, I have the ability to respond. So, you know, my health, for example, it might be where I want it, 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 where I want it to be. But, you know, I have a choice, as you say, and uh, I can make choices, you know. Um, now we're getting into free will a little bit, but, you know, that's a different debate altogether. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's, that's very interesting, you know, to reframe things and say, you know, it's not actually uh, this, this recurring scenario, for example, it's not happening to me. I'm the, the central character in it. 
you know, uh, I'm not being as active as I'd like or sleeping as much as I want, or I find my nutrition is a struggle. Um, I'm, I'm the, the lead character in these scenarios. Um, and I have the ability to make a change. And I think <clears throat> expectations are important there. So people try and do too much too soon um, or they expect too much too soon. And then they get like uh, kind of disenfranchised or disheartened. Um, so yeah, like expectations are huge as well when you're trying to, to change your health. Um, so then if we're going back to someone trying to change their health, um, do you think people should start with their mental health first or their mindset? Um, or is that just something you do a little bit of work on and you kind of revisit it? Um, like, because the more I learn about psychology, the more I think it's like foundational to any sort of change. So it's like, you know, the exercise plan is great. And so is the nutrition plan, but I'm starting to think more now with my own clients that I should really get some, uh, psychological work done, uh, as the foundation of the, of the change we make before going out to the exercise and the, the nutrition. Yeah, I. I love that you are approaching your clients with this holistic understanding of humans and what we're all about. And it is, there's a lot of facets. I wouldn't say you have to be emotionally buttoned up before you start your, your nutrition and, and your, your physical exercise. Cause it's all, again, it's holistic, right? So again, and getting back to some of my, my big passion points, I'm so troubled that people don't use nutrition. There's so much research about processed foods and sugar that causes anxiety. I mean, so people, again, they look to this pill, just give me the Xanax and then I'll calm down. And I'm thinking you could make a couple tweaks in your diet and your anxiety would drop dramatically. And this is substantiated by lots of psychiatrists and psychologists who are doing this kind of work. And we know that our mood is immediately affected by endorphins, right? From physical activity. So, and you spoke to something also very important is that someone could come to you and you'd be like, all right, we're doing this, 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 this nutrition, emotional health, exercise, and they could get overwhelmed. They could get really hopped up and excited. And then they go home and they crash because they're like, oh, wait, I don't think I can make all these massive changes at once. So I would encourage addressing all of these prongs because they're going to interrelate. And that's, what's beautiful about it. Something I'm not at all in your space. And, but like anyone, I want to be physically active because a, I don't want to be fat and I want to feel confident about, and which gets into our, uh, my work that I do with, with a lot of people in the relationship space, you can't feel confident if you, if you feel like your body's hideous. So, so even someone coming to me for dating advice, I would want to integrate making sure that they're being physically active so that they can feel confident. I mean, I want people to be able to approach anything, work, family, relationships with their most confident self. And that's going to come through doing what you help them do, which is get something in place, be disciplined. Discipline is related to happiness, people, because when we're disciplined, we it's one of the only things that we can really do to boost our self-esteem. And this gets back to developmental psychology where uh, parents want to have, I want my kid to have the strongest self-esteem. No one can give anyone self-esteem. We earn it ourselves, self-esteem when we set goals and reach them, right? So that in the process of setting goals, whether it's nutrition, whether it's physical activity, that's going to help boost that self-esteem and confidence, which then getting back to the emotional realm, they're going to feel psychologically healthier. And of course, if they're working on relationships, which we all are all the time, they're going to feel more confident and that they're really thriving in their best self. It reminds me actually of what you said earlier of acceptance. So 
first of all, it's accepting if someone wants to change their health that, uh, you know, there's something, there's a change to make. And then from there, is it Rod, Karen Rogers that says it's only when I accept myself that I can make a change. So it's like from there, then uh, you're kind of freed and you can, you can start to, to see, okay, here's what needs to be addressed. Whereas I'd imagine if some client came to you and said, I want to, you know, improve my dating life, but they're like, I'm not very confident, you know, my health isn't where I want it to be, but you know, I don't want to work on that. Well, it's kind of like, you know, if there's something that you're not happy with, you could work on, you need to accept it first. Uh, yeah. It makes me so sad because dating's hard enough. And if you're stepping into a first date and you don't, like I have clients who say things like, well, you know, I'm, and these are going back to the question you asked earlier, messages that they heard as a child. Well, you know, my sister was the pretty one and I was the funny one. And so it's trying to, meet your person with this one down position of, well, I'm not very attractive, so I better be funny. Right. I mean, it just, it breaks my heart because like I said, dating's hard enough, but we want to, at least when we're on that date or when we're again, even a job interview, anything along these, these lines, we want to at least feel like we're we're holding our own, you know, like, I'm not saying you have to be like, I'm Giselle, I'm the supermodel, right? You don't have to have that kind of feeling, but to at least to feel like I'm confident in who I am and what I have to offer. And that's, uh, that's not always easy. So the work you do is so helpful. It's so critical for any of your single clients that, that they're getting after it and really taking charge of that aspect because they will build so much confidence, not only as they fit into the size jeans they want to fit into, but also because they set those goals and they reach them. Yeah, definitely. If they can uh, be disciplined um, and they can set a goal and it doesn't even have to be physique related, it could be, you know, they got stronger, uh, they improved their cardiovascular fitness or their energy. Um, all those uh, benefits are nearly more important than the, the external because you can have them all the time. Whereas external, if you don't see yourself, you don't feel them or if you don't get um, feedback from someone else, then, you know, that, that benefit is kind of gone. Um, so just finishing up just the last one, we'll finish on a, a little bit of a higher note, um, cause we've gone into some, into the weeds of, of psychology. Uh, so the science of hope that was, uh, episode 121. Um, and I was just thinking about someone is on a health journey. They're trying to improve their health or change their health. Um, how can they stay hopeful? Say when they face a challenge, they have a setback or they just don't achieve a personal goal. Um, you sent me a, a great article on hope. So. Yeah. What would you recommend for people, you know, going through like a, a tough time with their health and their goals? Yeah. Well, for me, cause I'm such a little psych nerd and I'm, I, I know a lot of us, like you said, you, you like the articles, which I love that you were wanting to see those. You want to check out those references and check out those articles. For me, it's very encouraging to know that the research shows that hope matters because sometimes people say, well, hope is just, it's fluff right? Stay hopeful, see what happens. But there, I mean, I remember one research study I came across when I was looking at the science of hope and it showed that being hopeful was more predictive of students doing well, college students doing well. Like at the beginning of the semester, they, they ascertained and they assessed how hopeful the students were that they would do well. And in that semester in their coursework. And then at the end of the semester, the students who were more hopeful had higher GPAs. And it was, they had, for college, this was more predictive of them doing well that semester than their high school GPA. So their raw intelligence was less predictive than their own hope. So that's just one example. So something like that 
when people are struggling and losing hope and feeling demoralized and feeling discouraged, for me, like remembering a, a research finding like that helps me shift, get that mental shift. Like, okay, I know I don't feel hopeful right now, but I want to step into it. I want to try to strengthen this hope muscle right now because I know that it's going to make a difference. Another thing for me that like we've talked about beliefs and mindset throughout this conversation is sometimes you're not going to feel hopeful. And so then I always recommend putting your mind in front of hopeful things, hopeful messaging. So for me, when I, after I caught off my wedding, I went through this really painful breakup where I thought I met my person. It didn't work out. I was with him two years. Now I'm out again, late thirties now, still single. This isn't how I wanted my life to go. I was really struggling with this breakup, feeling horribly discouraged and demoralized, thinking maybe I'm never going to meet my person and all the things that we can experience when we go through life. (laughs) So I couldn't trust my mind to stay in that positive space and remain hopeful. So I started listening to, and it could be whoever really inspires you. For me, it was Joel Osteen. I just loved his message of hope. So I would get in my car and I'd burn a bunch of his podcasts on my, on the CDs because this was before Bluetooth and everything. And I, even if I was driving 20 minutes, I knew that my mind would go in a negative space. So I was like, all right, I can't trust you, mind. We have to put you in front of, I had to put my mind right in front of powerful, encouraging, hopeful messages and basically try to, like we talked about earlier, try to make my brain listen to stuff that even I didn't believe. No, I don't feel like I have any hope for the future. I don't think I'll ever meet my person. So I put myself into in front of messaging that would basically have the hope for me. And eventually I started buying into it. So I don't know whoever, whoever inspires you, listen to their podcast. Don't trust your brain in that moment because your brain is feeling so sad. It's going to derail. You want to keep on track by, by letting someone else speak those words of hope for you. That ties back into everything you've said. So it's like you're talking about living based on your values. So, you know, even though you're feeling down, you know, um, after going through that tough time, uh, you were like, you know, I can be better than this. I want to aim higher than this feeling I have right now. So um, that's like, you know, your values and then being disciplined to be like, right, I'm going to put myself in, in front of this, you know, uh, inspirational person that, uh, you know, has a message that I want to resonate with that I'm not really feeling right now, but I know it's good for me. So um uh, I have a picture of LeBron James here and uh, a client, you know, was nice enough to paint a picture for me. And he's someone I always look to. I I always try and find those sorts of inspiration myself and just kind of think, what are they doing right? And what, uh, what values do they have that I want to embody myself? Um, So that was a great, uh, great conversation, Karen. Thanks very much for your time. Uh, Do you have anything that you want to let people know about plug uh, or just mention before we finish up? Sure. Yeah. So my podcast is called Love and Life with Dr. Karen. And honestly, we talk about all the things we talked about today. So uh, yeah, so that's an option for anyone who wants to kind of look at love and life through a psychologist's perspective. I hope that every, I was a professor, so I'm really big on the research. I have almost every episode has some little nod to research to substantiate what I'm talking about and and the topic of the day. Uh, I also, I'm pretty active on Instagram. If anyone wants to follow me there at Dr. Karen, and that's with an I, D-R dot K-A-R-I-N. And I just provide a lot of, again, research-based information to help us level up and and thrive in in life and in love and in all the things because it's it's, it's rough out there. (laughs) And we could always use that boost of encouragement. And as we noted today, I do kind of specialize in the dating relationship space. So if you want to go to my uh, website, you can get a free, what I call an empowered dating playbook. It's all rooted in research and cognitive 
therapy. So much of the stuff we talked about today, there's some exercises you can work through if you're feeling that you'd like a little help in the relationship space. And again, my book is Single is the New Black. Don't wear white till it's right. But yeah, Ross, thank you so much for this invitation to join you today. It was a real pleasure and an honor. And I love everything you're about. I know we've just recently connected, but from, especially from this conversation, I can tell that we really align and resonate with each other's messages. So it's been a real, it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And I second everything you've said, like your, your posts and your podcasts are gold. I'm like learning from every one of them. So keep up the good work um, and all the best in the future. Thanks so much.